Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's Saturday, January 30th, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. My name is Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Chantelle Alakori. First up, we recap last Tuesday's Invasion Day rally and chat to a notable speaker from the event, 17-year-old Shania Donovan. After that, we bring you a story by our Backchat producer, Charles Rushworth, about a unique form of hibernation that might have helped animals, some presumed dead even, survive the bushfires. As always, we want to hear from you. Did you attend the Invasion Day rally on Tuesday? Let us know on 0409 945 945 or you can tweet us at BackchatFBI. Backchat. Text 0409 945 945. January 26 might be the date the government expects us to celebrate this sunburnt country we call home. But it's not a day all Australians can celebrate, let alone our First Nations people. Earlier this week, thousands of Australians took to the domain to protest the date as part of the Invasion Day rally. Here to give us a recap is our very own Backchat producer, Rebecca Manibog. Have a listen. The 26th of January is a date that carries a lot of hurt, death and violence. The history and continuous mistreatment of our Indigenous community gets buried underneath the barbecues, the celebration of quote-unquote freedom and good old beers. Many have stated that this date should not be celebrated, in fact that it is a day of mourning. A remembrance of survival. Invasion Day marks the anniversary of the horrors that our Indigenous Australian community have faced and still continue to endure to this day. Last Tuesday, the Backchat team took to the Invasion Day rally to not only support and pay our respects to the traditional owners of this land, but to amplify the voices that have been muted for centuries. My name is Rebecca Manibug and this is the recount of the Invasion Day rally. The scorching sun was out and about as we made our way to the domain, as well as the fear of COVID-19, as our mob is one of the most vulnerable communities. However, the Invasion Day rally came prepared for the income of support, as a plan was put in place. QR codes, sanitizer dispensers and marshals were seen throughout the whole event, and although there were many at the domain, and probably more at the beach, the boys in blue were present. There was a COVID plan that was released online by the orga- by the organisers. Um, so that's all in accordance with um, there's a legal requirement on New South Wales Health to have a COVID plan for these sorts of things, and they had that all in place. So there were things like um, masks being handed out, hand sanitizer being handed out, social distancing, and then repeatedly by the people who were speaking, they kept saying, you know, you need to break up into 500, and um, you need to socially distance. So constantly reminding people. Police and COVID marshals guided protesters to designated areas, dividing people into groups of 500 the best they can. Seas of black, red and yellow signs flooded the domain under the shade, socially distancing in support of this movement. The sun was deadly, but COVID marshals and volunteers were ready, walking around with free water, sunscreen and sanitizer, while speakers of the Aboriginal Australian community tell their truths. Kaya Padden, the great-grandchild of Aboriginal Australian journalist Jack Padden, was one of many speakers at the rally. 
Yama. My name is Kaya Patton, and I'm the great-grandchild of Jack Patton. For some of you who might not know, Jack Patton, today on this day, 83 years ago, 1938, he took Elizabeth Street. With a, he stood in solidarity with the rest of us First Nations people for us to fight for us to be classified as people because my great-grandfather was a foreign father. He was not a person in his own country. In his own country. What is Australia Day? What the fuck is Australia? What is Australia? Australia is built on fucking lies, on blood. Our ancestors' blood is on this land that you sit on today. Many voices were amplified with hurt, with sadness, and with anger. Once we lost Redfern, we lost the heart of the city. Bob, we are here. Our land has been taken away from us. Our children have been snatched from the mothers. People have been killed, mass murders. But today we are all here in respect and we keep fighting the fight that our ancestors fought for us. Australian Unity, AKA the Victorian Native Association, also pushed in 1994 for Australia Day to be the first public holiday. So they keep swapping and changing to suit their own needs just like the politicians. They're all full of shit and full of dust and need the fuck off. Many other speakers included Tara Bankstown, Shania Donovan, David Shoebridge and many more. The rally closed with Indigenous rappers Barker and Dobby, whose performances were interrupted midway due to COVID concerns. A march originally to Prince Alfred Park was canned due to an agreement between organisers and the police force. We'd love to know, what does the 26th of January mean to you? Simone Pash, and that was Ray Munro. Uh, opportunity to express our, uh, our ability to survive, our, um, our durability, I guess. Still here, and you know, for for everyone to be able to to gain an understanding of what's gone on, of what we're dealing with, and of what we want, absolutely, what we're going to direct. To me personally, it's a day of reflection, day of mourning, day of sorrow. But then underneath all that, it's a day of survival, revival, resistance, embracing. It's like the essential day on the calendar because it represents the first time when our culture and our land and our people's demise started back in 1788. It's, today's a day for our babies to stand and watch us and see how grateful and how proud we can be as a people in our own country, even though while the system still denies us our human rights to life, it's important that our children get to celebrate this day and see our strong ones standing up saying, hey, change can come if we keep building it. My name's Lizzie Jarrett. I'm proud Bunjalung Dungadi Gumbangia woman. I'm 41 years old. Um, I currently benefit and live on the beautiful land of the Gadigal people, which I pay my respects to every day. And yeah, that's me. That was Backchat producer Rebecca Manibug recapping the Invasion Day rally that took place in Sydney last Tuesday. And to speak more on this, we're joined by 17-year-old Gumbangi and Darig woman, Shania Donovan, who spoke at the rally. Hi, Shania. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So what inspired you to speak at Tuesday's Invasion Day rally? Um, well, I felt that my need to be there really uh, lies in uh, showing up for my people and making my voice heard for people who aren't able to speak for themselves. 
Um, so I really spoke because I have a message to get out to people that we need their help both from our mob and our allies and we can't make any meaningful changes for us that are going to help us without them. So four people were arrested at the rally. What was the police presence like on the day and how did it make you feel? You know what, there was there was lots of police both um, in Hyde Park and then in Jabagali in the actual domain. Um, I understand that they were trying to keep us safe, but I also, in a way, felt that they were asserting their authority in an environment where it wasn't necessary or asserting a certain amount that wasn't necessary. Um, But in saying that, a deal was done with the police between the organisers and themselves to sort of make sure that everything could go ahead, that everything was peaceful and everything actually worked out. So, I mean, to be fair, I did really appreciate the support in us uh, being able to hold the rally. And you shared an experience about an interaction that you had in Kmart. Do you mind sharing that with our audience? Oh, yeah, 100%. So what happened was I was in Kmart and I had a... Aboriginal flag shirt on that said Koreas do it better and I've written all over it because I was going to an event and I wanted to decorate it myself um, and I heard a woman behind me it was probably it was wasn't this invasion day it was last year and she said oh look another one and I turned around and I didn't say anything so I, I didn't want to match their energy and sort of be snarky and smart like them but I sort of just looked instead and they were like oh, yeah, another one. It was 200 years ago. Why can't they get over it? And I feel like that, like that's not something that just happens in Kmart. That happens all over the internet. It happens in like everyday conversations. And I feel like we, like Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, really need to feel comfortable um, telling people how it really is and helping them to understand how we feel so that they're sort of welcome to our world for a quick second. So what's next for you and your community? Well, in terms of events, the next thing that myself and my friends will be attending will be the TJ Hickey Rally um, for little brother TJ Hickey, uh, who was another death at the hands of police. Um, But in terms of how people can support us, we really need people to be acknowledging Aboriginal people in social issues moving forward. Um, you know, just continue to show up for more, tell people that it's not a trend, it is a fight that we're continuing to fight every day and it needs to be fought every day, not just around this time. Um, and we need to continue to show support uh, by showing up to rallies, speaking out online if you have a platform. doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a million followers, just you need to have a platform and be speaking out about it. Um, donating to Aboriginal-owned businesses, Aboriginal causes and most importantly, I think, speaking out when someone is wrong Um, or when something else is wrong and talking to Aboriginal people about what they can really do to help because every situation is different and every Aboriginal person is going to need help uh, fighting this fight. So there's been contention over the number of people that were at the rally. Official numbers say 3,000, but Google Form allegedly received 80,000 plus responses. What was your read on the turnout on the day and people showing up? Well, I would would say there was definitely more than 3,000 people there. Um, I remember reading that the actual uh, COVID safe check-in was around 10,000 people and then I I think that's a lot more close to what it was because what happened was police were actually separating people into uh, 500 person groups because it was meant to be only a 500 person rally Um, but they did take that extra step, that extra measure to make sure that everyone was safe 
Um, yeah, everyone was split into two, uh, groups of 500. Everyone was under the shade. Um, yeah, but there was there was more people as well in Hyde Park. So that was just in Dabagali, in the domain. Um, there was more people in Hyde Park that didn't come to the rally but were still showing their support over there as well too. And finally, how can allies show support beyond Invasion Day? So as I, as I said before, like what people really need to be doing is uh, educating themselves and educating the people around them that the fight that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people um, face every year on January 26th and every, like, with all the social movements such as Black Lives Matter, um, it's not a trend and it really is a fight that we are fighting every day and it needs to be supported and fought not just around this time because that's how real change happens. So speaking out on, like, more issues more than just around this time would be absolutely super helpful. Shanae, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. That was 17-year-old Gumbear Gear and Darig activist Shanae Donovan who spoke at the Invasion Day rally last Tuesday. Don't go anywhere because coming up next, Backchat producer Charles Rushforth speaks to University of New England research fellow and zoologist Dr Chris Wacker about a newly discovered form of hibernation that kept native animals alive during the bushfires. But first, here's one by Sydney's Renan featuring Tandy. This one's called Honey, and it comes with a language warning. You're listening to FBI. It's back chat here on Saturday morning, 9.48 a.m. Last year, more than one billion animals were declared dead from the 2020 bushfire season alone. But there's a growing speculation from researchers that a number of marsupial species presumed dead may have used a form of hibernation called torpor to survive. Backchat producer Charles Rushforth spoke to one of Australia's leading researchers into torpor, Dr Chris Wacker. Check it out. My name is Chris Wacker and I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of New England in Armidale, New South Wales, Australia. So in our lab, we're ecophysiologists in our lab, which basically means that we study how animals are able to do what they do and live where they live. There's some really cool and amazing things that Australian animals are able to do. One of the really fascinating things that Australian animals can do is torpor or hibernation. Give a little bit of background, first of all, Birds and mammals are endotherms, and that just means that they have a high metabolic rate so they can keep their body temperature at around 36 to 38 degrees Celsius. And of course, we are we are one of those. We're one of those endotherms. And this means that you can keep a high body temperature regardless of what the environmental temperature is doing out there. So regardless of how low the environmental temperature is, we can keep our body temperature high and we can be active. That high metabolic rate is very expensive to run. And endotherms need a lot of fuel and food to keep it going. And you know that because we have to eat all the time. Well, myself included, I'm munching all the time. And that's just part of one of the problems of being an endotherm. Torpor, though, is a very controlled decrease of the metabolic rate. Animals that use torpor aren't just turning off the metabolic rate. They're actually having a very controlled decrease of that metabolic rate. And animals with a slower metabolism that aren't producing as much heat, so their body temperature decreases as well. 
And because the chemical processes in your body are affected by temperature, the decreased body temperature then further decreases the metabolic rate. So torpid animals may reduce their body, their metabolic rate, sorry, by as much as 90% or even more and decrease their body temperature by as much as 30 degrees Celsius, which is just amazing when you think about it being up there at 38 and they can drop it down to five degrees. So a torpid animal that doesn't need as much food to fuel the metabolism, and that means that the animals aren't out and about foraging for food as much. The, the challenge in Australia is that you often see, you know, we're either, we're either in drought or flood. Um, our landscape, our environment is very unpredictable. It really is. It's, you know, um, years-long drought and then suddenly a flood and then everything's okay for five minutes and, what, and then you've got bushfires. So it's very challenging for animals. It's, you, it's not that these animals may not have access to food, it's that they've got an unpredictable food source. And the ability to use torpor then allows them to cope with that unpredictability. Life is just so hard for animals in the wild, it's so much harder for smaller animals, and it's just this wonderful solution to so many problems. Because we now understand that certain species aren't seen at certain times of the year, it doesn't actually mean that they're not around. So once upon a time, if they did surveys before and after bushfire, for instance, and they would have found the animals were around before bushfire, and then they did a survey just after the bushfire, those animals aren't around, it doesn't mean that they, weren't, they were decimated. It just means they may have been using torpor and they weren't active during the times that they were surveyed. There are two schools of thought where that is concerned. Number one, you've probably heard the um, number a billion animals perished in our bushfires bandied around. And that is very, very, very possible. But the thing is, is that when people think of Australian animals, they think of kangaroos and koalas and those sort of things. And yes, they were decimated during the bushfires. There's no if, buts or maybes. But a vast majority of Australian mammals in particular are very small. So they're only about 10 to 20, 30 grams at the most, and they live under the ground. From experience, we know that some of those actually go under the ground during bushfires, escape the bushfire, and then what they can do is they can use torpor after the bushfire and then wait out until some of the um, plant matter comes back and some of the insects and that sort of thing comes back. So there's two schools of thought. One, that yes, all of those animals perished, and another school of thought that um, maybe it wasn't so bad. Something that's on everybody's mind at the moment is how climate change may influence strain animals, especially those that do use torpor and hypernate. So many of your listeners will have heard of the mountain pygmy possums. The mountain pygmy possum is a small marsupial that weighs between 40 and 50 grams. It lives in Kosciuszko National Park in the Australian Alps, where of course it gets very cold and snows um, for several months of the year. During these colder months, the nest is covered by snow and that provides insulation and keeps them warmer inside than on the outside. So otherwise, you know, it might get down to say minus 10 regularly. And so otherwise, if it wasn't for the snow coverage, it would be minus 10 in their nest. And that's just too cold, even for an animal that's going to um, hibernate. So the mountain pink possum has a few issues with regard to climate change. Number one, the increased air temperatures, even just a tiny bit, and this is what we're seeing now, equals decreased snow cover. Decreased snow cover means that a hibernacular or the nest is just simply too cold and it's going to be too big a temperature challenge for the animals. Number two, the mountain pink possum relies on the migratory bogo moth. This has been in the news a lot. And these moths prefer cooler temperatures and the pink possum eats them to fatten up before it hibernates. With the increasing climate temperatures, we're seeing, of course, a decrease in these moths. 
And number three, the peewee possum also eats the seed of the mountain plum pine. And it's very sensitive to bushfire. And we saw that in Kosciuszko National Park with the last bushfires, that that population of these pine were just completely decimated, completely blackened. It's very sensitive to bushfire. Um, so, of course, that's, that food source is being um, taken away from the possum as well. It's a triple whammy, really, for the species. And it was once thought extinct, was found again, and we're going to lose it again. It's, that's just a simple uh, fact. We're going to lose it again if something's not done. So you can see that you have an accumulative effect. So many people may say, well, if it's warmer, they won't need to go torpid or hibernate. But the problem is that these species have been doing these things for such a long time. And torpor is often linked to reproductive behaviours such as mating um, and also, of course, gestational pregnancy and lactation. And then animals use torpor to fatten up before these stages as well so they can cope with the energetic challenges of reproduction. And of course, climate change is already affecting the food supply of many species. So adapting to changes takes such a long time for these animals and the changes to our climate are simply happening too fast and that's where the challenge lies. That was Backchat producer Charles Rushforth speaking with zoologist Chris Wacker about torpor, a unique form of hibernation that saved animals during the bushfire. Up next, this is Ezra Collective's quest for two coin for coin two, sorry.